my grandfather and my great grandfather were architects and then I think my my father was an engineer he kind of warned me against being an architect <laughs> so so for for many years you know when I talked about being an artist or architect and he said oh don't do that it's uh you know you you can't earn a living and uh you should you know do something uh and then you can do this as a hobby that was daughter mandrup and this is naughty portraits Daughter Mandrup is an internationally renowned architect who has earned a reputation for creating structures that have a strong sense of place and a unique sense of materiality. Having founded her own studio almost 20 years ago, today she leads a staff of more than 70 employees, or self-described diehard overachievers. Daughter has recently completed a number of high-profile projects on UNESCO heritage sites, as well as being the mastermind behind IKEA's new ambitious Copenhagen Urban Precinct. Daughter, welcome to Nordic Portraits. Thank you so much. Daughter, I wanted to cover a lot of territory today, but I wanted to start in perhaps an unusual place, about 300 kilometers north of the Arctic Circle. Yes. <laughs> and talk a little bit about the much-discussed whale project that you have recently announced. Could you tell us a little bit about that and some of the challenges involved with that? Yes, actually, it's a museum, but it's also placed in a very unique uh, setting. It's right on the edge of the ocean in the north of Norway. And since it's Norway, it's Arctic, but it's not that Arctic because you have the Gulf Stream going across or along the coast. So the ocean is not freezing in the winter and so forth. And the, the museum is looking at whales from different angles, both from the art angle and from the natural history angle, and uh, sort of celebrating whales and the life of whales. And, and the, the way we've designed the, the project is to make it uh, part of the landscape. So it's somehow, it's an island that's, uh, the interesting thing is that you have, you know, the ocean and the land is the same. It's all one big landscape, and, and the only thing, that differs with the ocean is that you have the water there. So we've been looking at the topography of the bottom of the ocean that's coming up at this point and somehow enhancing the landscape at the point and the museum is somehow hidden underneath the a rocky landscape. When you start a project like that, what are the very first steps for you? Uh, one of the most important things is to try to understand the place. And that implies understanding the way of living and the culture and the building culture. And also in, in a more abstract way, looking at the landscape and the lines and the way they, the way you can make a composition in that landscape. So did you go up to the site? Yes. Immediately? Yes. Actually, we were there on Midsummer's Eve, wow. uh, which was amazing. Yeah. Of course, there's sun all day around. Yeah. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then when you kind of have your initial exploration and you start to understand the environment, what are the steps internally for you as a team then? Are you very much someone who is delegating those tasks out to other people or are you the mastermind who kind of is the, is it the hub and spokes approach or how does that work? Well, it's very, um, it's very much a teamwork, but uh, of course I'm directing the team. I'm, I'm really involved when we do the initial sketches. But what we do is it's not this old fashioned, um, 
way that you, I do a sketch and then somebody is doing the drawings. But but uh, we look at the landscape. Uh, we work very much in our model, in the physical model. And um, so we work with different concepts and uh, look how it fits into the context. And then at some point, after doing the analysis, uh, different kind of analysis, we would make a choice and then try to to work that uh, concept uh, further. Sometimes it doesn't work and then you have to go back, do something else. But uh, I think when I was, uh, the first time I was at the site, I had this feeling that you needed to merge with the landscape and you had to, since the program was quite big and it's on a small peninsula, I had the feeling that we needed to somehow um, make the house part of the landscape. You've certainly achieved that. Thank um, you. <laughs> how would you contrast that with something like the the Warden Sea project, which I presume has its own set of challenges, being across three different nations? Yes. Um, can you tell us a little bit about about that project? Uh, the the Warden Sea project is uh, three different buildings actually, but they're all relating to the Warden Sea. And uh, well, actually, it's been three different uh, projects and three different competitions that we won. Sort of one after the other. So now we have a trilogy along the Wadden Sea coast, which is great. But the first project is um, placed in Ribe in Denmark, and it's an old straw building, or I think it's called reed in English. Yep. And the reason why we did that was the Wadden Sea is a very, very open landscape. It's very horizontal, and there's no trees, and it's pretty uh, rough, very, very windy. And we wanted the, the building to to protect from the wind, uh, so we made this interior courtyard, but also to to make the building, again, part of the landscape because you have all these horizontal lines. So by adding the, the building in the same materiality almost as the, um, as the fields around it and working very much with diagonal lines, so the wind will sweep over the, the building. When we're in Germany, it's on an old... Um, site for submarines from World War Two, so it's very emotional in a way about uh, you know, this old submarine harbor and uh, all traces from the war was gone there only there was only one bunker left and we wanted to not hide the history away but in a way turning it to something positive not that it's positive history but pointing towards the future and um, so we were building the or we are building the building on top of the bunker using it as a foundation and then there's um, there's an exhibition now inside the bunker so somehow these two live in a parallel uh, world and then in in Holland uh, or on the coast of the Netherlands we're working in a harbor setting and it's quite industrial and Holland is of course extremely Exploited, you could almost say every piece of um, soil is uh, is in use, um, very cultivated. And uh, here we're working with with surfaces that are relating to the horizon, because you're able to see the horizon uh, 360 degrees around. So, so the building is all about moving up and and seeing the horizon in different angles. Wow, I mean, I can hear from what you're saying here that every specific project has its intricacies and areas of detail that you need to do you like becoming kind of a subject matter expert in certain areas i read that with for example with the east fjord project in greenland you were suddenly studying the migration patterns of whales i mean is that interesting to you yes it's wonderful i have this uh, little thing with science and i i really 
that that is the wonderful thing about being an architect. I think that you you get to learn every time, and you if you're really curious, you can also get in touch with people that are very knowledgeable, and you can uh, you know suck it in. <laughs> So with the Icefield, we worked with a, a very famous uh, geologist, uh, Minnie Krosing, who's also half Greenlandic and born in Greenland. And it was extremely um, satisfying to get to understand parts of Greenland through him and, and his knowledge. And uh, we also worked with an architect that, that has been the city architect of Nuuk for, for many years. So trying to understand a place from many different angles is, uh, is just a pure joy. There's also obviously a strong anthropological element or yes. understanding sociology. Yes. You obviously enjoy that part of learning more about people yes. and their culture. Yes, I'm, I'm a curious uh, person and I think that's part of being an architect is to keep your curiosity alive. And I think to me it's really, really important. It's part of the joy and, and the, the fun of digging into a project is to understand the context in a broader term. So speaking to that aspect of curiosity how were you as a child were you always interested in science and nature where does that sense of curiosity come from yeah i think i'm i'm generally a very curious person and i also i i like to hear people's stories and and i remember them very well so um, usually people are very surprised I, I i can't remember their name but i remember the stories they've told me <laughs> And where did you grow up, daughter? I grew up at uh, different places. I grew up in uh, in Rungstad, actually, in the, in the north of Zealand. And then we moved to, my me and my parents uh, moved to Jotland. So I've been living different places in Jotland. And then I was educated in Aarhus uh, in the architecture school. I was in the States for a year. I've also been in a boarding school in, in Oxford. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, so, well, around and your time in the States, you were actually studying sculpture and, and ceramics. And ceramics. Yes. Yeah. Was, was that a potential direction? I mean, was at that stage, did you think you were to become an artist? Yes. I, it was right after high school. And I actually, I was majoring in biology and, and art, kind of a, two different uh, directions. So I was very um, divided, you could say. And I wanted to do sculpture. And um, I think then I was a little bit uncertain when I came back home and then I started on medical school. Wow. And, um, but it only lasted for not, not even a year <laughs> and I flunked or I dropped out and, uh, and then I, I started on, on architecture school, which was great. Do you remember where your first thoughts of becoming an architect came from? Well, I, I, um, my grandfather and my great grandfather were architects and then I think my, my father was an engineer. He kind of warned me against being an architect. <laughs> So, so for, for many years, you know, when I talked about being an artist or architect and he said, Oh, don't do that. It's a, you know, you, you can't earn a living and, uh, you should, you know, do something, uh, and then you can do this as a hobby. Well, you obviously have a strong aptitude for science. Has that held you in good stead through your career? Do you think? Well, I don't know. It's, um, I think architecture is also about science. It's also about trying to understand the world around you in a wider sense. And I think that's because there's so much um, that is also technical and understanding materials and, you know, digging into things, being a little bit nerdy. I think that has definitely been part of my architectural career. Uh, I've, I've always been very interested in how materials can work also aesthetically and how we can work with the um, economy in a project to get the most out of it. So I think that's, um, that's, that's definitely helped. You do have a reputation for being meticulous in your use of materials. 
Does it frustrate you when you see the final product of other architects who perhaps haven't placed that same emphasis on the materials and the finer details? I think um, what makes me um, frustrated is when I see architecture where there's not put enough care or investigation into whatever you do. Um, Sometimes the budget is really bad, but you can always get something out of it. Uh, And I think it has very much to do with care in anything you do. Uh, So the most frustrating thing is to see when people just repeat without any kind of reflection. I think that's a waste. You talk about reflection. Are you able to, and this is for me an interesting part where architecture and art blend in or the art inner artist in you, but are you able to self-reflect on projects and be critical or is that sometimes a yeah. little bit too close to your heart to do? I'm a, I'm a very self-critical person, so I think that's uh, also the, the the tough part of doing creative work, I guess, is that you, you're always looking, you know, what you've been doing and you're never really satisfied. I talked to this guy the other day and we talked about um, when do you think it's it's done in a way? You always have this kind of critical eye on what you do. But I've learned to let go instead of um, getting angry or getting frustrated. I think sometimes you need to let go if something went wrong or something didn't work out as well as you, you wanted it to do. If you don't let go, you, you can't live as an architect But because there's so many people involved in the process. And um, I think the, the project is very, very dependent on a, a good client. And sometimes you just don't have a good client and you need to do the best you can. But since, um, I mean, if you are an artist, sometimes it must be very frustrating not being able to exhibit or to, to show your things, but at least you can, you can produce them. But as an architect, you are so dependent on a lot of external people. And so you need to manage that whole process uh, as well as you can. And sometimes it just doesn't work. What do you define as a good client? What do you look for in, in a positive working relationship? I think it's it's very important that you have a client that's ambitious and wants to make the best out of whatever project you have and whatever budget you have. And also trust. You know, everybody thinks that architecture is something that everybody is able to do. Everybody has an opinion on, on architecture. And, and there's definitely a knowledge and an experience and uh, a craft that uh, the client has to wait sometimes to see what's coming (laughs) and uh, that they cannot control everything and they're actually hiring in somebody that has a knowledge that they don't have. And I think that's an important thing. At the same time, it's also important that you have a client that has an opinion and and does make this um, ping pong with you. It's really a wonderful thing to have a good client. It's something that that you have to take care of. You started your career under one of the more famous names in the architecture mm-hmm. world, Henning Larsen. Yes. What did you learn particularly from him? Henning Larsen was a very open person and very, um, he would uh, wait and see. He would uh, let you do things. And then in the end, he would always, in a way, make his mark on what we did. But he was extremely open and very generous, I think. So, I think the curiosity that he also had was very important to me in the way he was very involved in everything, but also was, you know, making a distant um, control. So he gave you the space to... He gave the, he gave the space. 
uh, he, he was also, um, the way we worked in the office was you were able to come in in the office in the middle of the night. You, everybody had a key. He had this, he trusted people. So I think that's important. You can't have a creative company and not trust people. And you need, you need to let people, you know, also maybe do their own stuff sometimes and, and not be so, um, controlling. Is it true that he said to you, and I might be paraphrasing that you should, not expect to make a name for yourself as a female architect. No, no, that's not true. Okay, uh, but I I know the the uh, I know the the thing that he said, and I heard it from a journalist who said that she did an interview with him, and he said women cannot make the 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 leap from you know collecting data and information and actually creating the artistic uh, leap. But he never said that to me. <laughs> <laughs> so you you always felt encouraged being around him i was quite surprised when i heard this because i never felt that he was sexist or had uh, different expectations for women but i think the times and the the age that he had was very much like that there's a certain generation that didn't expect any kind of artistic excellency from women because they were busy doing other stuff you know taking care of the children and and so forth so i think that um it was kind of very much part of that generation to have these expectations that women were not able to really do excellent uh, artwork. And I'd love to say that that's completely changed in your career lifetime, but but you did write an article a couple of years yeah. ago saying, you know, I'm, I'm not a female architect, I'm an architect. So yes. you obviously felt in writing that that you needed to yeah, explore the the perception of what yeah. it means to be a, a female architect. Yeah, I think that it's not entirely over yet with the with the expectations of women in architecture. And I think that what was frustrating to me, and that's why I wrote the article, was that in a way it was strange to get awarded for being female. It's like you know, oh, it's amazing you can do this. You're you're a woman, and um, I think it implied a lot of underlying sexism in a way and um, once I had this uh, nuclear uh, award many years ago and the, um, the motivation for the award was how feminine my architecture was which was it's not that I don't like to be feminine but I think it was a very strange motivation you would never motivate an, an award for a man saying um, you awarded this prize for making masculine architecture so I think there's a lot of underlying prejudice against women in the field of architecture. And I think that there's, it's so hidden somehow that you, you really need to point it out. And sometimes it becomes, you know, a little too uptight in a way, but it's still very much so that all the new offices that are coming up are, you know, two guys or three guys or four guys knowing each other and and there's still these networks that are very exclusive and exclusively for men um and uh, if i said this to my male friends they would say well come on you know but that's how it is so it's much more difficult to have a network to get assignments directly from a network and it's um it's very difficult to to point directly at what is wrong but you can see how the you know there's no other offices young officers in Denmark coming up with the four girls or two girls and two men, or it's, it's really uh, the boys club. What was the response like from your peers in the industry to that article? Um, well, I had a lot of really positive response, but also I think especially 
the older generation of women felt that I was not accepting my, you know, I was actually not being solidaric to the fight that they've been doing. And, I, and that was definitely not the point. I appreciate very much what they've been doing and I totally support the fight that they have done. But um, I think that we shouldn't accept the kind of division between male and female architects. I mean, it's not a competition in sports where where men obviously have a advantage of being stronger or whatever. So we should insist on being part of um, the male society and, and insist on getting our share. Are there any other nations or regions globally where you can see that there's a greater sense of equality within the industry? No. Because I, I would think that Denmark would be one of the, the better places in I, I that think regard. It definitely it is. It, it definitely is. Um, but there is um, – no, I think we are – in Scandinavia, we're, we're pretty advanced in, uh, in equality. But, and somehow it also seems to be a little bit spoiled to, to nag about this. I'm just pointing out we're not really equal here, you know. And you can see it at the wages. You could see how many women are, you know, having their own offices and so forth. And I think that's uh, definitely not equal. And then you can discuss why. And there's a lot of parameters for that. But you can also look at the facts and saying, no, it's not equal. Do you think there's any sort of public policy or work on behalf of the industry that can go about starting to correct this course? Uh, I think in Sweden, um, yeah, we always look to Sweden because they're somehow always a little bit in front of us if you discuss equality. In Sweden, they have um, men and women go on maternity and paternity leave and they have you know quite a lot of time, meaning that you actually uh, are creating a more equal home relationship, I think. I think that in Norway, they have for many years have rules about equality in boards and, and so forth. And in Denmark, we've always been very much against rules. We like to think of ourselves as being very anarchistic. And I think that sometimes works against discussing political correctness. Um, Danes hate political correctness, which I, I, as a Dane, also do in a way. But on the other hand, I think there's, um, you know, it's very easy to to laugh at political correctness, but you also need to try to make the world a better place, right? Yeah. Dorda, you spent many of your early formative years with your own studio working on buildings associated with education. Mm -hmm. I was just very curious what you observed during that time about how Denmark does education and you were also involved in innovating a lot of very interesting spaces that were conducive to learning. And I wondered if you could just share a little bit about your experience. Yeah, there. I was quite involved in, um, there was a large project in a municipality that actually had some extra money to change all their schools uh, physically. So the driver was a changed school system that was actually made quite early on but wasn't really implied into the into the daily life of the school. So by changing the architecture from classroom learning, they also changed the practical ways of uh, working with the kids in the school. So very much project-related uh, group work um, and so forth, um, meaning that you needed to work differently physically with the surroundings. So, so part of that would be what we worked with was actually um, a conversion of a listed school done by Anne Jacobsen, which is uh, the famous uh, modernist. And we tried to work with a system that the school was kind of laid out as 
classrooms, equal uh, classrooms and small courtyards and everything was in a way based on the teacher telling the kids what to do. And uh, by working with a new space that was much more open and much more fluent, you could in a way supply these basic classrooms with a different way of learning. So it's very much based on instruction first and then practical work. So if you go into a physics class, you will have instructions and then you will go out in projects and do different um, tests and, and, and so forth. Uh, so you can use the big space for all these different experiments and you have the instructions in the, the kind of classroom base. When you approached the Arne Jakobsen project in Mongol, mm-hmm. did you do that with any sort of fear or trepidation that you're approaching the sacred cow of the Danish landscape? Yes, I was totally fearful. <laughs> no, it was, no, it was, of course, um, I love Arne Jakobsen. I think he's a... He's an amazing architect. And, and um, what is so difficult when you are transforming a work by Anna Jakobsen is that everything counts here. The details are extremely important. Proportions, scale. And um, every time you change something here, you risk uh, that you spoil everything because it's very delicate and very um, subtle. So, yes, I was very um, afraid to do wrong here. <laughs> What do you think, daughter, has been the, the single biggest challenge for you in the 20 years of running your own studio? Well, I think the eternal challenge is, of course, to balance that you need to earn some money to pay wages and uh, and rent and everything. And you need to have a certain amount of people in your office to be able to actually have the expertise that you need now being an architect. It's not like Utsun who had a small office of... Um, I don't know, five people and they did everything by hand. Today, I think architecture is a highly professional business and you need all these experts to be able to support your work. So you need to earn some money uh, to be able to do the projects that you want to do. You know, you spend so much time in keeping the uh, economy in the office uh, sound. I hired in a um, CEO some years ago and it's been a, a great relief for me because I spent so much energy just uh, trying to not uh, go bankrupt. <laughs> no, it's a, but it's, I, I think that's a, that's a big um, challenge being an architect. I think it's probably also a big challenge when you're an artist because also you need economy to be able to produce. But being an architect, you need to have this big machine running. It's always present. Are we doing okay? Are we able to pay wages next month? That's, it's not that we, I mean, we know that we can pay wages next month, but 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 there's this uh, kind of balance between the artistic ambition and and just keeping the business sound. Because if it's not sound, you're not able to do what you really want to do. We compare architects to other artists or forms of art, mm-hmm. and other artists generally don't have a staff of seventy. No. <laughs> so so do you have to be a good leader to be a good architect? Um, well, I think, I think when you are an architect, the people that are working with you and that, that are also ambitious, they want to be in the creative process. So if there's the people you work with, um, agree on the track you're on, I think it's kind of a natural way of doing it. But I think being a leader in another sense, I mean, being a a director or CEO is a totally different competence. And um, 
to me, it was very good to realize that my ambition and my talent was not in being a leader or being a CEO of a company. And it's actually uh, really a craft and a knowledge. Uh, so, so to me, it was a very important uh, understanding, you know, that I should not be the CEO of my own company. On a very personal note, daughter, in 2004, your partner and father to your seven-year-old child, yes. Boya Lungor, passed away. I wondered how you managed during that period, because your studio was obviously still in its infancy. You had a young child. I just wondered if you could give us an insight into how you navigated what must have been an extremely challenging and an emotionally difficult period. Well, I, I, we, I, my daughter's now 24 and we've been talking about it lately. And, and I think you just do what you have to do. And um, to me, it was very important that she was there because, you know, you just wanted to make a good life for her. You know, I had to keep the company going. And I think you can do amazing things when you have to do it and when, when there's a reason and when there's people dependent on you. But I was also very stressed uh, a lot of the time. I remember, you know, bringing her to kindergarten and hanging the garbage bag on the, you know, on the little thing with the elephant <laughs> and leaving and stuff like that. You know, just being so... Um, so it was kind of a period of, of constant stress. When I'm looking back, I, I can see that. But, uh, you know, you managed... Do you think you generally thrive on stress? No, actually not. And I'm not sure that stress is good for a creative process. I think it's um, very important to find a way of pausing whatever you want to do. You know, uh, people do different things for cleaning their minds. But I think that is an, an important thing to do. And there were many years I, was, I wasn't doing that. I just kept on going. But um, I think now I have the possibility of doing that, and that's great. And I think the creativity is much better. It's, it's, um, it, it's much more precise and focused when you have time to reflect. Denmark's quite renowned globally for its focus on work-life balance. Do you think that's possible to achieve in an industry like architecture? I, I really uh, I, I think this buzzword, work-life balance, is a strange thing because I think when you are occupied with something you you do work a lot and i think there's also a need for preoccupation for a longer period of time to get deeper into what you do so i think it's a necessity sometimes to uh, to work long hours because it takes time to get to get into uh, something that you are, are into and then you need to relax for some periods but i'm not so sure that the um, work life balance has to do with how many hours you work or where you work, or I think it has much more to do with being mentally balanced with what you do and uh, and not getting stressed. <laughs> and I don't think stress has so much to do with how many hours you work. I think it's much more to do with if you keep on having ambitions on every part of your life. I think a lot of the younger Danish families has enormous ambitions on how they want to live their life, and sometimes I think that makes them really stressed. <laughs> I think they, they want to be the best parents. They want their children to be going into all kinds of projects. They want to, to grow their own garden and they want to make the best food. And, and I think, you know, what's wrong with the pizza once in a while? I don't think that it makes your life worse. And I think that, that there's, um, this kind of equal ambition for everything you do and expectation 
uh, I think, you know, they also expect to have the best love life and the best partner and the best children. And then, and it's actually bound to not succeed because it's not possible. It's kind of a, a dream of perfection that I think a lot of Danish families uh, suffer from. It's really interesting insight. <laughs> I wanted to close by talking to you a little bit about the IKEA precinct. Yes. Because I know that it's IKEA's second big urban project. Mm -hmm. It sounds fascinating. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, it's been uh, going on for quite a long time. It's part of a master plan that is um, connecting the inner city to the South Harbour. And we tapped into that master plan by adding, well, was to start from the beginning, IKEA wanted to build this uh, warehouse in almost the center of Copenhagen. And they, they came in with this uh, blue box that, you know, IKEA from, and the municipality wasn't accepting this in the center of the city. So we've been working with the municipality and IKEA to integrate the, the warehouse into, it's quite a large amount of square meters. And it's in a way out of scale for this uh, for the center. So to integrate it into a landscape and make it into a, a park, a city park, in this quite dense area where you don't have much green. So that's kind of the main scope of the project is to to make it into a park inspired, you know, by Highline and and other city parks. Uh, so basically, it does uh, connect the inner harbor where the SEB Bank by Longontranberg starts, kind of a green path through the, the quite dense city. There's a lot of traffic here. There's a lot of noise. And so by lifting up the park, you, you get away from the noise of the streets and you add this uh, green area to Vesterbro, which is a very uh, dense area. So that's basically the scope of the project. You make it sound so simple. Nah, well. <laughs> <laughs> was it, I mean, was it a bit of a dream project to take on? Because it is, it's such a, an interesting challenge to take this iconic IKEA brand who suddenly want to plant their flag right in the middle of an urban center, which they haven't done really in the past. No. And the, the IKEA has changed a lot too. I mean, they, the store started by being uh, quite large, like the usual blue box, and now it's half the size and uh, there's a different logistic. Uh, you don't have the, the storage inside the city, which is also a silly idea to take up space in the city for storage. So I think it's been a really interesting process to work with IKEA and also to work with the municipality and all, you know, it's also interesting to work with all these different interests, the neighborhood and, uh, and to try to make everybody come together and uh, agree on the project. Dorda, what do you think it was that took Dorda Mandrup architects from largely working in local projects to suddenly elevating and working very much with high profile international projects? I think, uh, being an architect, it's always about getting the chance of getting to do the nice projects. And um, basically, in the beginning, when we had the office, we worked uh, mainly with kindergartens and very, very low-budget projects. So getting the chance of competing with some of the, the more high-profile projects, you could say, was definitely our chance. I could say so. So winning the Warden Sea Center and uh, the Ice Fjord Center was really important uh, to us. I mean, you can only do what you are given the chance to do. And I think uh, to getting the possibility of competing on these uh, high-end projects is, uh, is important. Final question for your daughter as we wrap up. How would you define Danish architecture? 
very democratic um, to define Danish um, architecture. I think it, it, it's quite distinct what's going on in, in Denmark right now. And you can usually recognize some of the Danish projects because they have a certain program also, which has to do with relating to the street or relating to the public space. Or So there's a large focus on public space and, and the relationship between building and public space. And I, I think that's... Um, that's part of our background and, and culture is to to be very focused on context. And um, I had this discussion. I was uh, head of the jury of the the Mies van der Rohe Prize last time, and we had this discussion on a project. And I said, "Well, I, I'm a little bit disappointed with this project because it doesn't do anything for the for the street on the ground level, and there's no relationship." And then there were a few of the jury members saying, well, that's just a dream you're talking about. It's not possible. I mean, this is a social housing area. You know, everything would be destroyed if you opened up the, the bottom floors. And I realized that my opinion had so much to do with me being used to to working very directly with the ground floors and the relationship to the public space. And we're very used to, also because I guess we have a, maybe a little bit naive uh, society, that that is a possibility. And it was certainly not a possibility for some of the jury members uh, coming from other cultures that you could have this naive trust in opening up the bottom floors and and creating, you know, collective uh, whatever. So I think that is uh, very much part of um, our culture. I think Jan Gill has meant a lot to the way we think about urban space as a natural thing. Of course, you relate to the urban space. Of course, you relate to the um, to the context around you. It's just something you have to do. If you don't do that, you're not a good architect, right? But that is not the um, opinion maybe everywhere. So I think that is very distinctly Danish. Dorda, thank you so much. It's uh, It's been an absolute pleasure. It's certainly an interesting time for you with so many new projects coming in and so many recent successes. So it's, I feel like we've got you at the right time. Right. <laughs> thank you for coming on the show. No, thank you so much. Thank you. Nordic Portraits is a series by me, Ben Catford. The music was composed by Nina Liu and the visual identity by Copenhagen-based studio Frame. To learn more about today's guest and all the others from this season, visit nordicportraits.net. You can also follow us on Instagram, and remember to rate and subscribe on iTunes so we can get the word out. Thanks for listening.